Christmas story never gets old, and so it's kind of fun to turn to the second chapter of Luke and read it again, or portions of it, and we shall, we shall do that now. The second chapter of Luke, beginning at verse 8. Part of the Christmas celebration um, has to do with the great music and the times together as a fellowship and family. And I join Lee in urging you to come and be a part of the family night at Christmas. Every year it gets better. Last year this auditorium was completely full up into the balcony. And everyone said, it'll never be better than that. I promise you that it'll be better. And I hope that you can come. Uh, If you're a student, you'll need a little break to come and be with us on Wednesday. And uh, so you get your ticket today and look forward to that with me. Verse 8. And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord." And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. Here's the text. And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. Does it upset you sometime to find among your Christmas cards a letter from the Internal Revenue Service? I mean, can't those folks... uh, leave us alone and wait a while and let us enjoy our happiness at certain months and our misery in others. After all, there's nothing like a letter from IRS to jolt you back to reality. But it does point up an observable fact, and that is this, that much of our Christmas celebrating is pure fantasy with no basis in reality. When you think about it, and all those Christmas cards you get, those scenes are so unreal, such fantasy. Think about what every artist paints. Scenes, beautiful countrysides, with oceans of purest snow and ecologist delight. And every object of the world of nature is cast in cloaks of cheery loveliness. Every lighted window and blazing hearth, symbols of peace and joy, and rich contentment. But is that really what it's like? Is that really what it is? And those scenes of Bethlehem on those Christmas cards are pure fantasy. 
The uh, stable is a scene of order and immaculate tidiness. Every animal is groomed and curried like they were getting him ready for the county fair. And the shepherds are well-dressed and tidy, and they find their place in the midst of these heavenly visitors without embarrassment. But is that the way it really was? Is that really how it was? I mean, where's the filth and the dirt and the blood and the pain? I hate to be a Scrooge this morning, but, but really on that night of nights, there wasn't a hush over the whole world. As a matter of fact, it was a night just like every other night. And men loved and quarreled and bargained and bought and watched and slept just like always. And in the end there in Bethlehem were jammed with weary travelers who had just made a journey they didn't choose to make and their nerves were frayed and their tempers were volatile. And they grumbled because of the taxation of the Roman uh, occupation. But who gives a hoot what's happening outside in the stable? There's so much fantasy, so much uh, unreality about our observance of Christmas. Caused one um, English writer to say that, that the, um, the story of Bethlehem is so covered with unreality in, in, in the uh, uh, songs we sing and the uh, uh, observance we observe so that the tragedy and the mystery of the, of the incarnation are completely obscured. Um, did you notice what our text said? These shepherds said, let us go to Bethlehem and see for ourselves what has happened. I mean, how much about... Um, Christmas is really fact, and how much is, about, is really fantasy. Let us go to Bethlehem and see for ourselves what has happened. It wasn't that these shepherds didn't believe the angels, but they wanted to get behind the angel's song and the heralding of the heavenly watchers, and they wanted to get the story for themselves. They wanted to see the real story for themselves. They wanted to come and see for themselves. And that's what we're about this morning. Because I have a notion that some of us use Christmas as an escape to unreality. And some of us would like to linger in the realm of the angel's song. But that first Christmas, the New Testament says, was placed right down in the midst of human need, in the midst of reality, in the midst of the, of the Tehrans and the Ethiopias and the Indias of the world. But Jesus was born in the midst of human suffering and human need where men were striving and quarreling and careless Jesus was born into history with all of its concreteness. God was born on earth. And so I want us to come this morning and see what is really reality, what is really fact, what is really fantasy. And I guess the author of the Gospel of John was able to put it better than anybody else when he said, but God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son but whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that, my friend, is reality. 
And if we keep that thought first and foremost in our mind and heart, we'll discover some realities at Christmas that we have heretofore passed by. And what are they? Well, first, we'll discover for the first time, perhaps, the great optimism of God. The great optimism of God. Never has the human soul been so assailed by fear and failure and, and frustration as in our time. And I think largely because in this fast and furious pace of the modern man, men and women have lost faith in each other. We have lost confidence in one another. I mean, how many times have you said it? Who can you trust anymore? Nobody you can trust, no one. Who can you really believe anymore? In this fast and furious pace, men have lost faith in one another. But the curious thing about it all is that God has never lost faith in us. And Bethlehem is the infallible proof of the quality and the integrity of the everlasting optimism of God in the humanity He created. God believes that the humanity He created will respond to His love. Let me pause just a minute to ask you, when was God most optimistic about the humanity He created? And you say, oh, I know the answer to that. It was in the garden before sin entered. Because God created this marvelous world and He stood back and saw and said, it's very good. And He created man, the, the height of His creative activity, the pinnacle of His creative power, His creative objective. But He saw that man, it was not man, it was not good for man to be alone. And so He told Adam, I'm going to create a helpmeet for you, a companion, someone who is going to complete you. And then he brought all these animals by for Adam to name. Now Jack Taylor pictures that one day uh, when that Adam happened, Adam was standing out on the road seeing all these animals pass by. And he was remembering that God said, I'm going to create a helpmeet for you, somebody who will complete you. And he saw this 2,000 pound hippopotamus waddling down the road. He imagined Adam saying, Lord, I know you do everything right, but... I hope this wasn't what you had in mind when you were going to create a helpmeet for me and somebody to complete me. And God put Adam to sleep and took a rib out of his side and created woman. And when he woke him up, Adam said, Wow, that's Tidwell translation. <laughs> and God rested on that seventh day and he looked at all of his creation and man and woman, the height and the, and the pinnacle of his creative activity. And God said, It is very good. And that was when God was most optimistic about His creation before sin entered. Not so. It was at Bethlehem and at Calvary that God was most optimistic about His creative activity, His humanity He created. It was at the manger that had the cross on it that God was the most optimistic. For that's the marvelous message of Calvary. Jesus laying His life down on the proposition that man is better than he knows, that he was created for something infinitely greater than he understood. And that's the paradox of the cross. 
At one, on one hand, it shames us for our littleness. On the other hand, it pays tribute to our eternal and potential greatness. And that's what Jesus meant when He said, If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. The eternal optimism of God. And what God was doing at Bethlehem and, and, and Calvary, what God was doing in the cradle cross was expressing, was gambling that man would respond to his love. And the poet picks it up and said, and sitting down there, they watched him. The soldiers did. There while, he, while they played with dice, he made his sacrifice and died upon the cross to rid God's world of sin. For he was a gambler too, my Christ. He threw his life, he took his life and threw it for a world redeemed. And ere his agony was done, before the westering sun went down, crowning that day with its crimson crown, he knew that he had won. Bethlehem, the reality of Christmas is that God believes in us. He's never lost faith in us. Abby, Abby Lamini was serving in the Notre Dame Cathedral during the French Revolution. One Sunday morning about Christmas time, he stepped out and looked at a congregation of the destitute, half-starved people who were suffering in the Revolution. And he wanted to lift them above their misery and hopelessness when he said, There's always one place left in your life where the eternal God can get a hold. Wouldn't it be wonderful this Christmas? if that one place that's left in your life where God could get a hold, if you would allow Him that hold and become what His optimism and hope inspires us to become. The reality of Christmas is that God is optimistic about His creation. The reality of Christmas is that God is realistic about His creation. St. Vincent endeared himself to the people who were disinherited and suffering in the 17th century by going about the country gathering up resources for their poverty and hunger. And one day in his travels, he saw a little baby that had been abandoned in the cold by the side of the road. St. Vincent picked the baby up, rushed to the, and knocked on the door of the order of the Sisters of Charity. When the Mother Superior came to the door, he said, Will you take and raise this abandoned baby? And the Mother Superior indignantly said, Those creatures of sin are destined by the will of God to die. And St. Vincent said, Whenever God chooses for somebody to die because of his sin... He sends His own Son to die. And that's the reality of Christmas. The one thing that was a black smudge upon God's perfect creation was sin. And God responded to the challenge in the only way that was left open to Him, left up, left to Him. The way of, his, of the power of His holy love God saw that sin 
was a smudge upon his creation. And he didn't turn his back on it. He didn't wink at it. He faced the reality of it. And the price was a wound on his heart. He saw the reality of sin and he gave his son for it. And he expects us to deal with sin in our lives and in the world with the same realism. Let me tell you something, folks. may surprise you. But you and I are sinners. We've sinned against a holy God and we've violated His love and prostituted His purposes. We have sinned. We have sinned against God. The Scripture said all have sinned and come short of His glory. And there is no hope for our for forgiveness of that sin or salvation from it apart from God's redeeming grace. We are sinners. That's the reality of it. And Sproul was right when he said, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And, as, and that term is not some theological term that's been devised to explain away the evil in the world. Nor is it a cliche that's been conceived by colonial hymn writers or backwoods preachers to frighten recalcitrant, recalcitrant congregations. We are sinners. We are not theoretical sinners. We're not honorary sinners. We're not vicarious sinners. We're sinners indeed and indeed. We've sinned against God. A man has a marvelous, infinite capacity, says Martin Luther, to explain or to justify every action of his life. It's called what the psychologists call the self-serving bias. Some people try to run from their sin, but it pursues them till they sin again. Some deny it, but it defies them until it wrecks the pattern of their life. And some try to condone their own sin by condemning sin in others, but it lies beneath the surface and festers and appears again and again, causing all kinds of ailments and problems. We are sinners, and our only hope is God. Now a man can come into this church, and some do, and strike their breasts and say, I'm glad I'm not like the rest. But I want you to come to this manger and understand that you are so bad that it cost God's Son for you to be redeemed. We're sinners. Alexander Wythe, one of the great preachers at the turn of this century, told about being in a Holy Communion service where John Duncan was preaching. And he said they passed the cup to a woman and obviously she was a woman of sin. And she shook her head as though to say, I'm not worthy of the cup. And a tear was on her face. John Duncan stopped the communion service, went over and took the cup, walked over to the lady, handed it to her and said, Take it, woman. It's for sinners. It's for sinners. The reality of Christmas is that God has given His Son for sinners just like you and just like me. And that's the only solution available to man for that sin. Faith in the finished work of Jesus at the cross. What is the reality of Christmas? 
God's optimism, God's realism, God's intention. Why Christmas? Why the star? Why the manger? Why the child? Why this mysterious invasion of God into human history? Well, the Apostle Paul has one sentence answer. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. For the divine intention was that man through Jesus Christ could be reconciled to God and he wouldn't have to face life and sin and death alone. And this is the marvelous message of Christmas. And this is the good news, the reality of Christmas, that God was in Christ reconciling man to Himself. Now the word reconciliation assumes an enmity. It means that because of man's sin, he was separated from his God, his Creator, his Maker, his Lord. And so God came in the person of His Son to restore man to Himself. And you let 30 years pass from that night in Bethlehem that we sing about on Christmas, in the Christmas season. And there's a, there's a low hill outside an old city wall and a crowd sways there. You can hear, almost hear, the hard breathing of a man in excruciating pain. You hear, you hear laughing mock, mockery and laughter. You can hear the dull thud of a hammer. Then the crowd swirls back and on its shifting edge you see a black cross swaying and it hesitates for a moment. Then it drops into its socket and there's a muffled cheer and a few curses, weeping, darkness, then silence. And the silence is almost deafening. And then all of a sudden you hear the shout of a man who breaks the silence. It is finished! For God has come in Jesus Christ to complete the plan of redemption formed before the foundation of the world and God has been reconciled. Man has been reconciled to God. Two ruffians decided they'd go and listen to John Wesley preach. They want to disturb his service. They gathered, they had, they were armed with some rocks and they want to disturb his service. Wesley often preached outdoors to crowds as large as 5,000 without means of public address. He, has a, he had a marvelous voice, a great preacher. They gathered out there with these stones. They're going to throw them at John Wesley. But Wesley was preaching on the power of God to transform human life. And he was so caught up in the Spirit of God that his face glowed. And the ruffians were captivated by it. One of them said to the other, Bill... That ain't no man. That ain't no man, Bill. And they watched and listened as Wesley preached. After a while, from relaxed hands, they dropped the rocks. They were enthralled by his sermon. 
When the message was over, the crowd parted and Wesley started to leave for it. As he passed, passed by one of the vandals, he reached out just to touch his coat and Wesley stopped, put his hand on his shoulder and said, God bless you, my friend. When he went on his way, he said, Yeah, it is a man, Bill. It's a man. He's a man like God. And that was the divine intention of Christmas that God would come and make you a new man, a man like God. And until we see that Jesus was more than just a man, He was a man who was indeed the God-man, we've not grasped the reality of Christmas. So I want you to come this morning and I want you to see a child, a baby, rise out of that dusty manger of straw. I want you to see him baptized in the Jordan, anointed by the Holy Spirit. And I want you to watch as he goes about the villages of Galilee, healing and helping folks and know that God is in that man, Jesus. And he is what God has come to make you to be, just like him. With a love that's out of this world, he came. And he reached out and touched the off-scourings of humanity. He put his hand on lepers. And he demonstrated a love that was out of this world. And he demonstrated a life that was out of this world. He threw out the charge, who convinces me of sin? Not one charge was brought against him. No one could. In fact, the scripture says, and the scribes and Pharisees all sought counsel to betray him and could find none. And even his enemies said, this man is of innocent blood. And his friends who were with him in the nitty gritty of life saw every reaction, heard every word he said, never saw him sin. And Peter said it for all of us. He is a lamb without spot or blemish. His life was a life beyond this world. His power was a power beyond this world to transform and to change. That's the reality of Christmas. Come and see that for yourselves. Our Father, we have seen the eternal optimism of a God who believes in humanity created with such hope and vision and optimism that He gambled His own Son. He gambled Himself. We have seen the realism of sin both in the world and in our life and how You've dealt with that sin in the finished work of the cross. And now we see, Father, the divine intention of Christmas, that man might be reconciled to God and become everything he was meant to be. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. And may our adoration go beyond carols and words promises to commitment, for I pray in the name of Jesus for His sake.